everybody, it's Roman, and welcome to the weekly review. I'm pretty, uh, feeling pretty tired. It's Friday, September 4th, 2020. Thanks so much for tuning in. We've got the doors open because the air quality is a little bit better than it has been, so getting some fresh air in here. Start off with some music as per usual. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land, and I would recommend that folks check out ramatouche.com, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.com to learn more about the history of the land that we're on and the people who've been here. And I also want to encourage folks to pay the Shimmy land tax. If you go to SH, if you type in S-H-U-U-M-I land tax, you'll be brought to the Segorate Land Trust page. You can learn more there. Um, I'll be playing mostly some audio pieces today. Uh, there's a panel discussion that happened, I believe, yesterday, the day before, uh, where folks <sighs> went and spoke with unhoused folks here in San Francisco. And Lots of information there, so I know that's not the best uh, uh, celebratory, excited uh, way to set it up, but it's super interesting, and there's a lot to learn from it, so I'll be playing that in a little bit. I guess I'm just kind of low energy. I only had one cup of coffee today. I biked here, and it's been a while since I've biked, and uh, woof, yeah, I'm winded. Ten minutes, and I'm winded. So I'll be playing a little bit more music. Uh, kind of throwing things together a little bit, but there's a lot of great content on the show coming up, lots of stuff to learn, and I'll be getting to that in a little bit. So please do stay tuned, and thanks for listening.
Hey, welcome back. Still got some low energy, but I'm waking up a little bit. Maybe? Question mark? Start off with some Tame Impala, and throughout the week, if I'm listening to music, I listen to The Current, which is a great public radio station out of Minneapolis. I find, or I find, I hear music there that I, some of it I haven't heard before, and I'm like, oh, great, I'll play this on the show. And sometimes I, uh, I don't know who's playing. Oh, there's some glasses here. Someone left their glasses, uh, some reading glasses here at the station uh, for the folks who are listening. If you left your reading glasses, they're right here. I'll listen to music, and then I'm like, oh, this is great. And if I don't know them, I'll either Shazam it or do a screenshot um, to, s to see who the band is. And uh, I couldn't remember the song. And sometimes, you know, you're more into it when you're listening to it. And then afterwards, you're like, okay, all right. So that's, that's that. I'm trying to s stay positive right now. It's really difficult. I have been journaling a lot lately. And the other day, I just had a draw. I had a draw instead of write. And I drew a little cartoon of like storm clouds and one this was like climate change with like lightning shooting down at a little person uh at the bottom that's just a, a stick figure that was i guess me and then another lightning cloud that said pandemic lightning shooting down and another one that was a uh, far right wing and police violence and lightning striking down and then also another one another clouds like no safety net so just gutting of social services and also like lightning striking down and just how much right now in the United States there is. And it's like, there's that saying that, oh, cap I mean, it's just, I have heard some good news though, is that Generation Z, they're all like, yeah, capitalism's awful. And I'm like, that's, I'm so glad because that they realize this and know this. And I think there's a lot of folks my generation and older who, who still defend it. And they're like, oh, there's so many choices. I'm like, yeah, you get to choose how you get to die. But you don't even get to choose, really. There's just so many different ways, so many different things that can kill you. It's like lack of health care, lack of food, lack of shelter. You got climate change, got the military, so many different ways. So, you know, I guess that's, that's probably not what they're talking about. They're talking about going to a supermarket and you can buy lots of different kinds of cereal if you have the money. Anyway. I uh, don't mean to be a downer. This show is, I, I have heard from folks in the past that this, this show can be depressing. And, you know, when I think about oh, what, do I, what do I listen to, I like to listen to things that are informative and also upbeat and funny. And I do hope that this show provides positive things because there's also a lot of good information about how to defend oneself and stay alive and also just a lot of information. So even though the stuff that we talk about is just super depressing and it's heartbreaking, there are also are so many folks out there who have a lot of uh, doing a lot of important work and important information to share. So that's what I'm here for: help share information uh, with folks to make life a little bit more manageable, and hopefully we can get out of this mess alive. So I'll be playing the panel discussion that I mentioned earlier around 12:30. Now that I've started talking, I'm now I'm getting into the swing of things. Got to warm up a little bit. Remember in improv, you do all those warm-up games, and I guess when you're with yourself, it's like, I'm not going to do the crazy eights and like shake my, my hands out, although maybe that will help wake me up next time. We'll see. So the panel discussion I'll be playing is Stop the Revolving Door uh, Report Release Panel, and you can find it on Facebook. It came out a couple days ago, and uh, it was shared by the Coalition on Homelessness, and a lot of different folks shared information, so folks can check that out. It's a little over an hour. So I'll probably start playing that around 12.30 or so, and I'll mostly play most of it because that will take up a big chunk of time. And before I start with that, I did want to share some other pieces of information and other other th 
it's th things are so not specific. However, uh, there's a lot of resources. That's the word resources. I'll share some resources. One, and this is in no particular order whatsoever, uh, The Groundlings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney is a book. The paperback is available with a free ebook for eight ninety seven, and there's a free ebook. So if you just want the ebook, it's totally free. If you go to Verso Books, and that's V E R S O Books dot com, and uh, just the brief description: a remarkable book on the international operations of racism and the global meaning of black power, and that's written by Walter Rodney. So again, you can find this at versobooks.com, The Groundlings with My Brothers by Walter Rodney, a free ebook, and the paperback is under nine bucks, and you get a free ebook with that. So you can get that there. So check that out. Another resource 40 Ways to Fight Fascists Street Legal Tactics for Community Activists. This was posted fairly recently, August 27th, 2020, and you can find it at spencersunshine.com. And there's you can download it. There's a principal zine. You can read it online as a PDF. And there's a two-page 40 Ways flyer. So if you want to, like, print it out and put it up all over town or city or wherever you live, this would be uh, something to do. So lots of things and to do. All right. And so this is, again, by Spencer Sunshine in collaboration with Pop Mob. 40 Ways to Fight Fascist Street Legal Tactics for Community Activists. So there's a lot. And I'm just going to read the, the contents here, and then I would encourage folks, if you would like to take a further look, to go to the webpage, spencersunshine.com. Contents 1. Get started. Uh, 1. Uh, part, part 1, I should say. So, part 1, get started. Number 1. Learn about far-right movements. 2. Find collaborators. 3. Keep an eye on the local far-right. Part 2. is Take action. 4. Release your research. 5. I'm going to stop numbering them because... Remove and replace far-right propaganda. And, and even in San Francisco, we see far-right propaganda around, and it's pretty disgusting and disturbing. Six. Okay, I guess I am numbering it. Push public groups to oppose fascism. Seven. Make it difficult for far-right groups to meet. Eight. Refute their lies. Nine. Use the court system. Ten. Expose fascists at home and work. Eleven. Deplatform fascism online. Twelve. Prevent the far-right from crashing progressive events. Thirteen. Drive wedges between individuals and groups. 14. Find new collaborators. 15. Organize anti-racist bar crawls. 16. Help fascists become formers. And part three is be proactive. 17, which I guess is the one thing that I'm doing my best at. Get your message out. Or, oops, get your message out first. Okay, I've been, yeah, okay, get your message out first. 18. Build educational programs. And... Uh, a great organization is the Center for Political Education, and I share a lot of their information here. And they also send out weekly emails with, like, just articles and lots of information. So I highly recommend supporting them and following their work. Uh, 19, hold memorial events. 20, make a spectacle. 21, organize trainings and resource fairs. 22, form an emergency response team. 23, recruit early and often. 24, fundraise before you need it. Uh, part four is the counter demonstrations. Counter demonstrate. 25, win public opinion. 26, push local officials to do the right thing. 27, organize counter demonstrations. 28, pressure local businesses and rental spaces. 29, document their rallies. 30, don't be outgunned. 31, call out fascists and call in colleagues. 
Next, uh, be supportive. So this is the last set. Uh, support people being who are being threatened. Establish a safe house. Help the families of victims. Aid the injured. Support those targeted by the law. Support imprisoned activists. Warn people who are threatened. Publicize threats and attacks. And 40, support communities pushing back against fascist recruitment. And then there's a, a bonus round, which is to show your larger political vision. And in the appendix, there's a lot of resources as well as an introduction to all of this. So again, there's a lot more information here. This is just uh, the summary. And for each of the each of the pieces I read, or titles, each of the titles I read, there's paragraphs of description. So there's a whole lot more information. I'm just giving the whole outline here. So again, for more information, a great resource, please go to spencersunshine.com. Cool. All right, some other good news that we have. This is from the JVP Union, and they announced yesterday, we are proud to announce that tonight our union, the Washington Baltimore News Guild, which is WBNG32035 of uh, CWA Union, passed a resolution calling on the AFL-CIO to disaffiliate from its police union, IUPA. We are so proud to have voted towards this historic resolution. Hashtag union strong. So again, there's the a lot of unions are out there working to get the AFL-CIO to, to disaffiliate from police unions. So that's some you know good news is for more folks to push in that direction. <sighs> All right. Okay. There's also um, along those lines. Okay, 12:22. So I did want to play that at 12:30, just so you know, go back and see. There's um, San Francisco Public Press is another great resource to check out. Organizers demand reductions in officers funding, uh, in or defunding in SF law enforcement. And so there's a great article by Laura Wenus or Wenus W-E-N-U-S. Uh, you can find it on the public press page, and it came out on September 3rd. And there's also a about a half-hour interview, too. So I might not get to that. Oh, there's so much to get to. Uh, how I don't have the time. Okay. Hopefully we'll get back to that. And if I don't, then please do check that out. Um, also, long-delayed uh, 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 congratulations to Corey Bush, who won a race in uh, St. Louis. Uh, Corey was a guest on the show many years ago and has been an activist for a long time, and it's really um, awesome to see someone who was who speaks truth to power um, be elected. Um, also, Ed Markey beat uh, Joe Kennedy the third, so it's also another progressive who has won, so that's also good. All right, and let's see here. I've got one more thing bookmarked I was going to share. Um, no North Brooklyn Pipeline. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, let me share this right now, and then I'll start the panel around 1230. And I found this also. just want to share so folks can see this. Um, it's the, if you follow on Twitter, no North Brooklyn pipeline, it's at N O N B K P I P E L I N E. Did you know that there's a dangerous racist pipeline being built through Brooklyn right now? And until I saw this, I did not know that. So let me uh, play this video here and get everything ready to go.
pipeline being built through Brooklyn? Did you know that there's a dangerous racist pipeline being built through Brooklyn right now? National Grid is building a fracked gas pipeline through predominantly black and brown neighborhoods in Brooklyn. This construction is going to cost $185 million. And guess who's paying for that? We are. Not only will we be paying for it with our money, we're also paying for it with our health and safety, especially in neighborhoods that are already more vulnerable to COVID-19. 153,000 people live in the evacuation zone for this pipeline. 153,000 people, not to mention schools, nursing homes, and hospitals. But the impacts reach even further. Fracked gas emits methane, which is 86 times more potent than carbon dioxide in terms of climate change. Tell National Grid we're not going to pay for our own destruction.
right, that was Shamir with 90s Kids. And coming up next is our panel discussion that I mentioned earlier. Stop the Revolving Door Report Release Panel. You can find this on Facebook. It was shared by the Coalition on Homelessness uh, within the last couple days. So let me get the uh, volume up here. Humming um, for media. And it started here. All right. So again, if you'd like to follow along at home, you can find it on Facebook. And you can, just uh, want to welcome everyone for coming. Um, for media, if you're here, please rename yourself um, for the outlet that you're representing. And we will get started momentarily. I also recommend that folks uh, support Coalition on Homelessness and buy a street sheet when you're able. And there's lots of great information in the street sheet as well. Thanks to Quiver Watts for sending out the information about this uh, this panel. And there's a number of folks on the panel as well. I think there's about eight folks right now who are listed, and I think folks also called in. And just really informative. And I uh, learned a lot from listening to it. So especially here in San Francisco, uh, I think it's important just to check in with folks and see what people need and go from there. again and welcome um, folks who are just joining us. We're going to get started at around 11.05 and um, please, you know, if you're from the media, change your name to represent. And I'm going to uh, the mouse over it and then you should have the option to rename. And um, I think we should just get started. I think everyone here uh, is is very excited to present this. This has been over a year in the making and we put our release on hold when coronavirus hit. So um, Jenny, if you wanna go ahead and get our slides started, um, we'll jump right in. So um, our report is titled, Stop the Revolving Door, a street level framework for a new system. Um, if you want to move to the next slide, my name is Olivia Glowacki and I'm the project coordinator for this needs assessment. Um, we will basically take you through our 100 page report in this presentation. So we are going through five topic areas that we covered really in depth in our quantitative surveys and our qualitative focus groups. So we'll be talking about homelessness prevention, the shelter system, behavioral health, which includes mental health and substance use treatment. And we'll also have um, a special presentation on the unique intersection of trans homelessness. Next slide, thanks. So um, before we jump into the findings, I really wanna give you a context as to why we did this needs assessment. Um, so the whole needs assessment ties back to Proposition C, the 2018 ballot measure, which taxes the wealthiest corporations in San Francisco half a percent to yield in total $300 million just to go to homelessness. And so um, this passed in November with 62% of the vote with of voter support. Um, and one thing that's really cool about the Prop C legislation is it already has kind of spending buckets for how we wanna allocate this $300 million. 
So half of all that money has to go to housing. A quarter goes to behavioral health, which includes mental health and substance use treatment, 15% for prevention, keeping families and folks in their homes, and then 10% for shelter and bathrooms. Um, and so where this me measure is at the moment is it's currently being contested in court. Um, and so that happened because three of the businesses affected by the tax sued the city over it. And so while the funding is being collected, um, we're unable to spend that because the controller is holding it just in case um, we lose in the lawsuit and we don't have to pay that money back. Um, but we have one at the lower court um, and appeals. So we're just waiting for this last step of the California Supreme, Supreme Court to decide the case. And so in this meantime, last year, when we found out we were in, in the lawsuit, um, we decided to take the time to take to the streets and gather the formal input of people experiencing homelessness on how this funding should be specifically used within these spending buckets. So, you know, what, what programs, what models and methods that folks who are the experts, people experiencing homelessness, want to see when the influx of Prop C funds uh, uh, hits the city. So, you know, in short, we just want a system that is turnkey ready as soon as the funds are released. So that way, you know, we can we can get a lot of the solutions started and unwrapped. So to jump right into how we did this um, needs assessment, we use the principles of community-based participatory action research, which is just academic speak for um, whatever community you're doing research in needs to be guided and steered by those who are primarily affected. So in our case, people experiencing homelessness. Um, and so the way we did this was we had a peer research team and you'll meet a few of these folks today, but we had a, a team of around a dozen folks who all have lived experience of homelessness who carried out these surveys and proctored them to other homeless folks. Um, the peer research team also had decision-making process when we first made the questions for the survey. Um, also guiding us um, in this whole experience were um, a multiple uh, university support from expert academics. We uh, have folks from UC Berkeley, San, San Francisco State University, Santa Clara University, and even someone from UNC Chapel Hill who were guiding us in our methodology and our instrument design. Um, the instrument design took took many months to fulfill. And we you know, con consulted not only our academic folks and of course our peer research team, but also government officials and um, community orgs uh, and service providers who have a stake in this as well. Um, and so in total, the team did over 600 surveys, but 584 were cleaned and uh, unduplicated, meaning that's only represented by one person, um, not multiple people taking the same survey. Um, or multi yeah, so we did 584 quantitative surveys, 25 qualitative focus groups that lasted an hour, which delved deep onto specific topics that we talked about, like shelter, prevention, uh, substance use, and mental health. And then um, the important thing here is that our sample, our 584 participants, is represented representative of that of the San Francisco homeless population. So what we did was we. Um, we matched our numbers of our demographics very closely to the point in time count in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, and age. Um, and so this is basically where all the data comes from. Um, 
we took to, uh, you know, drop-in centers like the lines at St. Anthony's and Glide for, for meal serving. We went to uh, harm reduction sites like needle exchanges. And we also went on the street um, to different encampments and um, other places like parks um, to, to get participants to take our survey. Um, and so we used a purposive sampling method, um, basically where we did monthly demographic checks. Um, to make sure that we're staying in line with our ultimate goal of being representative with the pit count. And so just one example of this is, um, you know, in one of our months, we were really low on Latinx participants. So the next few weeks, we focused specifically on areas in the mission, including Mission Dolores Park, the Mission Neighborhood Resource Center, um, and uh, Dolores Shelter. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to our prevention folks. Hi everyone, this is Chris Herring at uh, Harvard and um, a key part of Prop C is funding to keep people housed and there's much debate on how to do this. Uh, so we went to the experts on housed people and asked them about their situation leading up to homelessness and what would have kept them housed. Now the first section of the report also includes findings from focus groups with homeless families living in SROs and those living in their vehicles, uh, which I will not be discussing due to time, but you can find that in the report. Uh, so to the next slide, please. Um, so first we asked a series of questions asking about people's housing status prior to becoming homeless. And one surprising finding was that 51% of those renting did not have a lease at the time they were last housed, pointing to the precarity of many of those just before becoming homeless and also the limits of tenant protections that we fight so hard for in San Francisco. Uh, next slide, please. When asked all the reasons people became homeless, the primary reason reported by 43% of participants was that they lost their housing because it was no longer affordable. And as you can see in the breakdown, this was due nearly just as often to income not being enough and just being simply too low as it was due to actual job loss. Uh, next slide. When we asked what type of housing people were in immediately before their current experience of homelessness, we found that a disproportionate number had been in some sort of government supported or affordable housing, such as supportive housing, below market rate housing and public housing. Uh, we found that 13% of those surveyed, more than one in 10 of those currently homeless had been in the city's permanent supportive housing immediately before becoming homeless. A separate question asked survey participants if they had ever been in permanent supportive housing and one in six or 18% of participants reported previously being in permanent supportive housing at some point. Um, and so this finding is in line with the 2015 study by the budget legislative analyst, which found that after three years, 47% of permanent supportive housing residents had left their housing. So in some permanent supportive housing as it currently exists, plays a significant role in the revolving door in and out of homelessness, unfortunately. And now I'll hand it over to Tracy, who will discuss the racial inequalities we found in terms of housing, as well as our policy recommendations. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tracy Mixon. I'm a peer organizer at the Coalition on Homelessness, as well as I was a peer researcher during this study. Um, first, I'll start by saying um, our study found that a large racial disparity, disparity in experiencing evictions. We found that African Americans reported leaving due to eviction or threat of eviction at twice the rate of their white counterparts. Next slide, please. 
So as far as policy recommendations, first, when asked what interventions would have prevented their homelessness, rental assistance was re reported as having been the most helpful intervention. In this question, participants were able to choose multiple, multiple answers. By far, rental assistance was the most frequent answer. Nearly one third or 32% of survey participants who answered this question reported that rental assistance would have helped, would have prevented them from losing their cash rental assistance. The finding that primary reason people had become homeless was because rent was no longer affordable also supports the primacy of the policy intervention. Next slide, please. Focus group participants discussed the needs for more services and supports, such as payee programs, direct rent payment, and case management to assure that people who enter can remain housed without returning to homelessness. They also felt that autonomy really matters. Respondents rank basic essentials, including access to one's own bathroom and kitchen above even their own safely when, safety when asked about important factors they were looking for in housing. Our finding that one in six of those currently homeless in San Francisco have already been in supportive housing shows that our homeless housing programs are also a part of the revolving door into and out of homelessness. So while we need to increase the number of supportive housing units, we need to also improve their quality. Furthermore, city agencies and housing providers do not need to, do not accurately capture why people are leaving this housing. This needs to be remediated. Now I'm going to turn it over to Mark Fleming from UC Berkeley to talk about shelter. Okay, thank you, Tracy, and hello, everyone. So this section focused on San Francisco's shelters, including navigation centers. So the benefits of these services, as well as their challenges and the barriers to accessing them. And we also asked through the focus groups and the surveys about the changes to these systems that participants saw as the most urgent and the most necessary um, slide, please. So we surveyed those currently in shelter and those residing on the streets. So this is the breakdown. 56% uh, of survey participants were currently staying in shelters. And we found that these are not static categories and there is in fact a high rate of churn between street and shelter. Um, next slide, please. So a significant finding in this regard is that the majority of survey respondents currently residing outside had either regularly used shelter when it's available or had tried to access shelter and been rejected. So among those residing outside, a full 81% have either used shelter or tried to access shelter in the past. And so this finding is significant because it shows that most of those residing in public spaces are not you know, so-called service resistant or shelter resistant, you know, since most have used shelter in the, in the past and most often as we found multiple times and through multiple entry points. Um, slide please. 
So instead, you know, people face significant barriers to access to shelters. So here on the left side of the slide, you see among people who have used a shelter in the past five years, their primary barriers to accessing shelters. Um, 64% have had the experience of not being able to access a shelter due to no beds being available. And other primary barriers to shelters are excessive waits, finding access to complicated, missing check-in time you know, due to the uh, restrictive curfew policies, and then also having had bad prior experiences. And the other side of this slide, the right side, is uh, people who have not used a shelter in the past five years. Their primary barriers to accessing shelter are bad reputation, bad experience in the past, followed by being unable to live in a congregate living setting, no beds being available, and theft. Uh, so with that, I will turn it over to TJ, who will discuss the shelter conditions and policy recommendations relating to shelter. Good morning, TJ Johnston, he and him pronouns, I'm a peer researcher. Our uh, participants uh, said that the shelter conditions are such that they pose challenges uh, to the health, safety, privacy, and dignity, as well as the ability to exit homelessness. Uh, one of our um, respondents, a 65-year-old African-American man who was like staying at Sanctuary at the time, said, Sometimes I have to spend weeks sitting at a chair in MSC South. Maybe you get a bed, maybe you stay in a chair. You continue doing that for weeks until your number comes up. Also, 30% uh, of our study participants who uh, stayed in the shelter reported to being forced to, to leave the shelter without any choice in the matter. Next slide, please. We also learned that uh, from our participants that the desire for more types of shelters to, uh, in the system. Uh, for example, there's like a demand for both a, a clean and sober shelter, as well as a safe consuming shelter where uh, people are, you know, able, uh, uh, are able uh, to use uh, drugs or alcohol in a controlled setting. Also, uh, we found that a majority of our participants uh, would prefer a legal camp where they are provided amenities, uh, uh, such as uh, showers, uh, bathrooms, basic security, and even having private tents, as opposed to the existing shelter system. Uh, next shelter, please. Uh, next slide, please. And further, our uh, participants uh, ranked as services that they would most improve uh, their uh, their stays in the shelter, are housing case management and case management. Uh, they also like, uh, you know, indicated that the, uh, the, there's a need for deeply affordable housing, options uh, for, uh, you know, transparent uh, pathways uh, to housing. And the shelters uh, should have a low threshold access and have rules that are easy to follow. Next slide. We also found that the navigation centers aren't working that the way that they should. 26% uh, of our survey respondents uh, reported staying in navigation centers in the past, while only like 12% were currently staying in the nav centers at the time. Uh, one of our uh, respondents, uh, basically described the experience uh, this way. I was at a navigation. 
That didn't make any sense at all. I was a three navigation. When you leave, it's done. You shouldn't have to leave until you get your housing. They give you a day for 30 days, and when that 30 days is up, you don't have housing, and you're back to square one, and almost in a worse way because you don't have your clothes or your jacket. Then you get put out. Say you do 30 days here, 60 to 90 there, 120 there. But in the navigation, if the time's up, you've got to go. And uh, with that, I'm going to pass this on to Jamie Chang uh, of Santa Clara University. Hello, everyone. My name is Jamie Chang. I'm an assistant professor of public health at Santa Clara University. And I'm here uh, today with Cesar Espinoza Perez to share the results of the substance use section. To start, one third of the unhoused respondents we surveyed reported having current issues with drugs or alcohol. This is about three times the rate of the general population in San Francisco. And this figure shows, um, the, this figure here shows the substances that were most commonly self-reported as problematic. On the left, you see participants reported having issues primarily with methamphetamine, cocaine, and alcohol. However, more participants reported having attended treatment for issues with opioids. Next slide, please. By and large, the substance use treatment system is actually working for the participants who have who are um, having who have reported having attended. Um, Eighty percent of participants who attended treatment reported that it either partially or totally helped them meet their goals, and uh, this is a very impressive outcome. Uh, particularly given the momentous challenges that people are facing um, undergoing treatment while homeless. The most common treatment settings were residential treatment programs, followed by NA or AA, uh, followed by detox programs, other peer support programs, and finally medication-assisted treatment, uh, most commonly methadone maintenance. Uh, however, it's really important to note here that over half of the unhoused people who reported a substance use issue indicated that they were not receiving treatment of any kind over the last five years. And obviously this is a big missed opportunity. Um, next slide, please. We asked participants about the barriers they experienced accessing substance use treatment. And the most commonly reported issue was that the pathway to treatment is difficult to navigate. That is uh, figuring out if there's a spot available or what an appropriate treatment plan might even look like um, was very confusing. Participants reported that the rules and treatment programs are also very strict, especially for people who are still actively using drugs or alcohol. The cost of treatment and the lack of treatment availability were also reported as significant, bar significant barriers, especially for participants who needed residential treatment or detox. Next slide, please. I'd also like to quickly note that we asked the respondents um, about their experiences with abstinence-based or harm reduction treatment approaches. The responses were almost split evenly with half of participants reporting that treatment not requiring abstinence helped them, in, helped them remain in treatment, while the other half reported that abstinence only is what worked for them. And I think this really speaks to the need for very flexible treatment philosophies at every treatment level. Thank you very much. Now I'll turn it over to Caesar, who will go over the recommendations. Hi, my name is Cesar Espinoza Perez. Uh, I was formerly, formerly unhoused and I've traded uh, sex for housing. Um, so there are, there are many recommendations that we 
that we don't have the time to fully discuss here today, but we do describe them in, in detail in the report. The primary things I wish to raise today are <clears throat> respondents reported um, how important stabil uh, stability in housing post-treatment was to their recovery. Um, the city has recently invested in step-down housing, which has been successful um, in improving outcomes. To promote long-term success, there should be fluid access uh, to housing directly from treatment programs. For example, um, that the treatment coordinates transition into housing. Um, the city needs to um, develop a comprehensive and accessible real-time inventory database of existing substance use treatment program slots, um, eligibility criteria and availability in order to reduce the confusion and frustration of navigating a complex treatment system. I would also like to note that there's a huge demand for individualized support um, through case management. When we asked the respondents what they wanted from substance use treatment, we, we offered them a range of possibilities. They reported, uh, they reported wanting, wanting um, individualized support via uh, case management or other ways uh, as their number one choice. This was ranked higher than food. Um, people, people who are um, unhoused represent a wide range of variability in intervention needs. Many people who are unhoused indicate that they are not ready for substance use treatment, but these individuals may still benefit from increased stability, outreach, and resources. Um, expanding and intensifying street-based outreach, um, utilizing harm reduction strategies may um, be a way to promote uh, safety while people are act actively using. Um, providing clean syringes, naloxone, uh, safety slash hygiene kits, street-based uh, counseling and disseminating, disseminating uh, safer use education can equip people uh, who are not ready for treatment uh, with the tools and knowledge to use more safely. These efforts should be carried out in tandem with offers of shelter, residential treatment, and housing options and other means to stabilize a, an unhoused person. I would also like to say that one of the most difficult elements of substance use is the stigma. Substance use issues are health issues that should not be stigmatized. The stigma does a lot of harm and this really deserves more attention. Um, and I think a lot of the stigma comes from the criminalization of, of drugs uh, and the war on drugs. Ultimately, we need to fully implement and actualize treatment on demand and have treatment available uh, and for everyone who needs it. Uh, to achieve that, we need more fluidity and cooperation between housing, healthcare, and treatment systems. Thank you for your time. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Pike Long, and I've worked in the mental health care and or homeless service provision uh, in San Francisco since 2003 in various capacities. Last summer, I got to help run a series of focus groups that specifically asked about the mental health needs um, and the services available to people who are experiencing homelessness. So as you can see, nearly half of our survey respondents said that they currently have or have experienced in the past a mental health challenge that could benefit from treatment. Conducting focus groups allowed us to get a deeper understanding of what people's experience has been in trying to access the care they need. Next slide, please. Okay, great. So first off, let's just start with the positive note about what is working. Um, as with substance use that Jamie spoke of, um, one of the most uh, joyful groups I actually got to conduct was with the residents of a kind of permanent supportive housing that's called co-ops. Um, just a quick 
primer, if you don't already know, or primer, I don't know how to say that word. When somebody in San Francisco is brought into care during a psychiatric crisis, they're most often first taken to a clinical setting like the hospital or like Door Street Clinic to stabilize um, for anywhere from 24 hours to several weeks. After that, they can get transferred to an ADU, an acute diversionary unit, where they stabilize further on medications, get connected to services. And after a few weeks there, they, those who are doing really well are then eligible to move on to what we call an RTF, or residential treatment facility. And they can stay there for several months, which allows them to get set up with new routines, get a job, attend therapy groups, go back to school, just the kinds of activities that really help people get connected to the larger community again. Um, and then from there, people who do exceptionally well in these programs but still need long-term support can be eligible to move into the co-ops. Um, co-ops are permanently affordable apartments with about two to four residents each, and they offer a really good balance of independence and support from a dedicated case manager that the residents can call on whenever needed. Um, universally, the people we spoke to who had managed to get into the co-ops expressed a level of gratitude and relief that is really hard to put into words. Um, having permanent supportive housing has allowed them to stabilize in their recovery from both mental health and substance abuse issues, which a huge percentage of the city's people in mental health care have a dual diagnosis like that. Um, and it's given them a sense of dignity and autonomy that they do not take for granted. Next slide, please. So the sad thing is though, uh, the supply of these kinds of housing placements is really dwarfed by the demand. So all too often, people who've stabilized and thrived in the supportive environments of the ADUs or the RTFs are then flung back into the churn of the streets or the shelter system because there is simply nowhere else for them to go. There are not enough beds in these kind of programs to meet the need. And that is just the relatively small percentage of people who are not released directly back to the street from psychiatric crisis services. And sadly, that is the case for a huge number of patients. Um, we heard numerous stories of people being afraid or seeing that happen to like folks in the bed next to them, being afraid or having had that experience themselves before they were finally able to access the care they deserve. Next slide, please. Great. So. Um, among the most common response we got when we did ask people why they weren't accessing mental health support was that first of all, they are trying. Um, one young woman that we met was living with her partner, her two young children and their dog in one shared room with a shared bathroom down the hall of a short-term shelter in the Tenderloin. Um, I mean, she actually began crying when she was telling us how desperately she just wants a counselor, a professional person to talk to who can help her manage the stress, um, and help guide her kids more safely through this really hard time in her family's life. She's, you know, I think people forget sometimes like folks who are living outside or are unstably housed are well aware of the damage that this can cause long-term, especially those of them that have children. Um, she told us that of all the places she had contacted for support, every single one had wait lists that were so long that there was no way of knowing when she was ever gonna get the help she needed. Um, that, can obviously lead to an exacerbation of any kind of depressive or anxiety symptoms, right? Um, and unfortunately, we heard this repeatedly from other participants um, from other circumstances as well. Next slide, please. Um, so other barriers to accessing care included a lack of information available explaining the types of therapy being offered and how to get into it. A number of respondents felt that their physical disabilities kept them locked out of mental health care. 
And many expressed a deep desire for therapists who reflected their own lived experiences as people of color, as people who speak languages that are not English or English is not their first language, and those who were queer or transgender. Um, unfortunately, being able to access the mental health care they need has proven elusive for many. And Caesar, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Sorry, I realized we were <laughs> both gonna speak on that slide. But if not, I'll go on to the next one. No comment at this time. Okay, thanks, sorry about that. Okay, let's go ahead to the next slide, please. Okay, so we get it, right? We understand supportive residential treatment facilities for people with mental illness um, and especially dual diagnosis are expensive, um, but that's in the short term, right? What we truly believe based on the evidence in front of us is that when you compare it with the cost to the city of allowing people to keep spiraling in endless cycles of psychiatric crisis, stabilization, then returning back to the streets, it is simply the only sustainable solution, both economically and morally, to provide these kinds of supportive housing options. We also heard about the many ways that police interactions serve to compound the trauma and desperation that folks are already experiencing when they're having a mental health crisis. So when somebody is in psychiatric crisis, our city should be dispatching skilled counselors um, who are experienced with de-escalation, who know how to get them the help that they need and to bring them to safety and link them to services. Um, it is not acceptable that what we're doing instead is sending armed police officers. There are a lot of other recommendations in the full report, as others have mentioned, but for the sake of time, I'm now going to turn it over to Mike, and um, who's going to describe the situation for trans and gender nonconforming people struggling with homelessness. Thank you, Pike. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm a past employee at El Para Trans Latinas, which is a trans Latina community center. And we found that all these findings are especially pronounced for trans people who encounter many kinds of exclusion at once. In order to serve our trans population, we must address systematic exclusion. Next slide, please. First, we'll share a few ways to prevent trans homelessness. We must address intersecting barriers to housing. Racism, xenophobia, criminalization, and labor market exclusion threaten job and housing security for trans people. So San Francisco must invest in safe living wage jobs for trans people and must decriminalize the work that trans people do to survive. Second, local programs must address gaps in the eligibility for federal programs. City subsidies must be available, available for undocumented or formerly incarcerated trans people who are excluded from federal aid. Finally, we must make sure all programs serve trans people well. San Francisco should especially fund programs run by and for trans people since this is the safest option. Next, I'll pass it to Chris to discuss shelters. Thank you, Mike. Uh, my name is Chris Hansman from San Francisco State, um, and I want to share a bit about some shelter experiences and needs in the transgender community. So first of all, um, binary gender classification and anti-trans discrimination made many transgender people feel unwelcome and unsafe in San Francisco shelters. Many trans participants we spoke to reported experiencing transphobic harassment, and when we asked transgender people why they left shelters, 39% said that they left to escape mistreatment. 36% left because they stayed the maximum time allowed and 16% were kicked out, often as a result of conflicts related to gender identity or sexuality. More than half of transgender shelter users said that they've been asked uh, to leave or forced to leave shelter. And a lot of participants reported avoiding shelters altogether because they'd had bad experiences in the past or because they feared mistreatment. 
So trans study participants frequently experience discrimination and gender-based violence from cisgender service providers and reported many more positive experiences with homeless services provided directly by transgender people and for transgender people. So um, I'll pass it to Delara Yarbrough from SF State to discuss mental health care and substance use. Thanks, Chris. Um, mental health and substance use services were also sites of anti-trans discrimination, harassment, and violence. Harassment and fear of violence made it more difficult for trans people to complete drug rehab programs and anti-trans discrimination blocked access to the long-term housing that's essential to maintain sobriety. One out of five transgender study participants felt like their mental health providers did not affirm their gender identities. Many trans Latina participants who fled violence in their home countries struggled to find Spanish-speaking therapists who could help with asylum applications. From physical attacks targeting transgender women in public space to police violence to depression and anxiety caused by housing and labor market exclusion, transgender study participants confronted daily threats to their mental health. Trans people who were able to access care often left a provider's office only to return to conditions of poverty and discrimination and violence. Without housing, the cycle of poverty and trauma continues. Safe gender-affirming housing is crucial to mental health and substance use care. Next slide, please. Because of race and gender profiling, as well as criminalization of many unhoused trans people's survival activities um, and strategies, transgender participants' daily lives are often shaped by law enforcement. 45% of trans survey respondents reported having experienced police violence. 33% of trans Latinx participants experienced police violence, including in their home countries. We need to end police involvement in homeless services. And now I'll pass it back to Chris to talk about our policy recommendations. Hey, Delara. So uh, to conclude, these are just a few recommendations um, that we have to address and prevent homelessness among trans people. So first, we must prioritize hiring transgender staff in shelters and services. We also must create trans and LGBTQ only emergency housing that meets people's safety needs better. Um, in addition, we must add safer facilities such as gender neutral and private bathrooms and showers. And last, it's crucial as Solara mentioned to end police involvement and invest in other methods of problem solving and crisis intervention in shelters and programs. Thank you so much. Um, now to wrap up, I will pass it to Sam Lee. everyone. Thanks so much for coming to our release of this incredible report. Um, we encourage you to really look through every single page. There's so much data and analysis in there to go through, as many of our researchers have mentioned before. But now we are going to open it to the 
a portion of this panel. Um, and so if folks just want to write down questions in the chat box, please feel free to do so at this time. And if you're unable to, you can also speak your question out loud. If there aren't any questions from reporters, we can also go through some questions from our Facebook Live, which has been getting a lot of action. Oh, here we go with um, Joe Finn. Be how different from the system as it is now would it be? Like zoom out the lens, you know. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Sam, do you want me to take that or does someone else want to? Yeah, go ahead, Jenny. And whoever else wants to, you can chime in. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, with the funding with Prop C, there's the potential to totally Again, um, if you know anything about Prop C revolving on middle names, this is a little bit different. Um, uh, continues. Funding with Prop C, there's the potential to totally. Going from shelter to the streets, going from the treatment to the streets, you know, going going from mental health or substance use programs, going from the hospital to the streets. So, you know, if we were able to not only we not only have to get the housing in place, but we have to make sure that it's a very fluid movement um, from treatment into housing. And while you're in housing, if you need treatment, back into treatment and being able to return back to housing. So I think that this, you know, if we took if if all these recommendations were um, were put together as a whole, we'd see a, an incredibly transformative effect on the system. Um, we probably wouldn't get to zero homelessness, but we would get to a place where homelessness is much more brief and rare, um, which is which is where we're trying to go. Thanks, Jenny. And someone from our Facebook Live asked, what is the current status of the Prop C Oversight Committee? And I'm wondering if um, you or Olivia can also speak to the update on the lawsuit and the current release of the funds as well. Yeah, so the Prop C Oversight Committee is set to start mid-September. Um, the city has not uh, waited a long time before putting it in place, unfortunately, um, but it is starting now. And um, the lawsuit is at the appeal level, as Olivia mentioned. Um, the interesting thing is, is that there's also this possibility to that the controller may feel comfortable depending on revenue coming in in the November election um, has stated if the you know that he would feel comfortable releasing the funds legally he could release them today um, he has the authority to do that San Francisco believes we you know I mean our, our legal opinion here is that we won that it was a 50% measure 
Um, so, uh, but the controller hasn't felt comfortable having the revenue to pay it back if we lost the lawsuit. Uh, so that's where that stands. Um, we, sh we needed to find out if the, the Supreme Court, we're waiting for them to say whether they're gonna take the case. Um, and if they don't take the case, then the appeal stands and um, Prop C wins. Um, if they do take the case, we would have to wait for um, an answer there to see if there was a final decision. The expectation from our legal counsel is, is that they would be motivated to have a final uh, decision on this matter before uh, the 22 election. Thanks. And so this next question is from Carly Graff from the San Francisco Examiner. How might the scale needed to provide adequate housing, mental health, and substance use treatment, et cetera, have changed now due to the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, maybe Chris Herring, do you want to take a stab at that one? Um, sure. <clears throat> I mean, I think um, we're still waiting to understand what the full effect of this will be. Um, a lot of the eviction prevention measures are, as uh, the one just passed in California the other day, you know, is extending uh, protections until December. And there is a serious worry that, um, you know, what's gonna happen at that point, um, if not earlier, um, as, as there, it isn't as much strong of the increase of homelessness. So obviously, if uh, we do face the tsunami of evictions, which a report by Gary Blasey of UCLA lays out pretty well for the case of LA, um, and there's been now uh, studies in San Francisco in the Bay Area um, trying to project this, um, the, the scale, uh, unfortunately, could be much greater, and uh, that will also depend on, you know, the federal action that will be taken. Um, I think we can also um, recognize already the increased need for uh, substance use and mental health treatment. Um, I've seen some reports coming out of the increasing of the uh, overdoses. I don't know if that's something that any of the other researchers um, are, are more familiar with on that front. Um, but there, there will be no doubt an increasing need um, for that as well. I think that the, the COVID-19 pandemic has really laid bare the vulnerabilities in many of our systems of social provision, but particularly in homeless services. And so I think the crucial transformation that our research and our report is pointing to is that we need to shift from this temporary churning in and out of um, large congregate shelters um, to preventing homelessness in the first place um, and to longer term solutions um, that come with housing. I will also add one other perverse aspect of this pandemic, which is the increasing um, profits of the tech corporations right now of which this money is coming from. So as homelessness may be increasing here, um, the receipts and the amount of money we would be getting on an annual basis uh, may in fact increase. I, I also think that some of the mental health and substance use treatments that you know we are focusing specifically on, on homelessness, um, is expanding to a much wider uh, group of the population and San Franciscans in general. Um, and so there might actually be broader political will um, to, to build on those aspects as well. 
Thanks, Dolar and Chris. And now we have a question for our peer researchers. Um, Joe wants to know if the peer researchers here can identify themselves one more time and also if they feel comfortable to briefly describe their experience with homelessness and how that experience has helped shape their conducting of the survey and the research. Uh, TJ Johnston, I'm like a, one of the uh, peer researchers. And uh, at the time of the, uh, when we were do, uh, doing the study and collecting the data, I myself like uh, was uh, um, unhoused. As far as uh, doing uh, the survey, I, in interviewing, uh, uh, interv interviewing the people, it was easier to approach them. Um, or rather, you know, uh, the people that we've interviewed found it easier to uh, be approached, ask us questions, because, you know, they have a sense that, uh, you know, that our research team basically knew their experience or was, you know, you know, was familiar enough of them so that, you know, they could, you know, tell their story. Uh, we kind of like, you know, it's, it helped build a level of trust that, you know, we were able to uh, get like, you know, um, you know, get information that's like, you know, that's, that's you know, useful and impactful. Uh, you know, that we were able to, to meet the people where they were at. And uh, Tracy, uh, did you did you uh, your experiences as a uh, in, in researching the project? Um, yes, Tracy Nixon. Um, a little bit when this was going on, I um I used to be homeless. I have a ten year my daughter is now ten and I was homeless when all of this first started and I've been homeless. I was homeless during my beginning at working at the coalition on homelessness. And so for me, um it was kind of hard because like different shelters we went to and different um navigation centers we went to, I was seeing people there that I knew. And I never knew that they were homeless and they never knew that I was homeless. But once we started talking, you know, then it was a lot easier for them to really express how that they, they were feeling. And so when a person knows that, you know, either I've been in this struggle or I'm going through this struggle right along with you, my situation is just a little bit different. You can always find some sort of common ground and it, it allowed people to open up to me more. Sometimes I heard a little bit more stories than I needed to hear, but I will say that a lot of the stories that I heard, it touches me now. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I'm glad that I actually was able to participate in this work. Oh, hi, um, this is Cesar Espinosa Perez. Um, and um, just, just, yeah, just hearing the stories and hearing that some of the barriers and like, uh, uh, um, the transphobia and like even myself like um when I was like uh I used to go to like the Lark Larkin Street shelter and um you know sometimes they, they it was a very clean much cleaner shelter for sure um but sometimes you'd go and like they, they didn't have any beds available and so just the limitations and then um and then where do you go at, where do you go then um and then also like if you when you when you brought your stuff like you couldn't bring like a, a lot of stuff you know if you had like a suitcase or something 
um, it would only have like the small amount of things that you could put in like the freezer. Um, and then and then you're kind of like on your own the next day or you could go to their employment um, place. Um, but there's like, there, I, I, I always thought there was this big barrier of like, how do you get on a lease? Like saving up that money for that deposit, like when, when you're being expected to pay first month and last month. And um, so it's, so that, that thing about case management um, like it really takes like a team of like people really to find to get housing, and that's why I'm really excited about like this uh, this study because it's um, I think it's easier in a way like uh, to have like to have uh, like people that are unhoused and people that are the allies working together to um, like to to help them um, get the housing they need. Because I know I was for me it took years. In fact, I had lost hope. Like um, and then I was like. I went through the steps and uh, I was kind of surprised when I finally like was got, you know, finally, you know, I'd gotten to the point of like being hope hopeful at some point. Thanks so much for all of the wonderful and amazing peer researchers for sharing. We have about five more minutes if the media has any more questions. But if not, we can keep going with the questions on our Facebook live chat. Um, and one of the questions is, which company sued over Prop C? And another is, with the softening of the rental market, has there been thoughts on how it might impact helpful policies? I'll take the first. Um, it the companies who sued were the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, the California Business Roundtable, and the California Apartment or Realtor Associations. Uh, Jenny, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just going to have to look that up. Sam, will you repeat the second question? Yeah, the second question is. With the softening of the rental market, has there been thoughts on how it might impact helpful policies? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, so one of the things that we've been following is the placements with private subsidy programs um, that are done from a number of different nonprofits. And the main one that's been doing it is Brilliant Corners. And um, they have a large uh, subsidy program down in Los Angeles that's been very successful with single adults where they call it a flexible housing pool, which basically just rental assistance, uh, you know, to, to move people into the private market. Um, the dynamics on that in San Francisco has changed, whereas, you know, it would be really, really hard to find housing for people with the subsidies. It would be really hard to get a landlord to accept them. Um, uh, they're reporting that they're turning away landlords at this point. And the amount of placements they've been able to do inside San Francisco, as opposed to, you know, displacing black and brown people outside of the city, which is kind of, what we do in San Francisco, which is the opposite of the magnet theory, just saying, um, we actually do the opposite. Um, so um, is, uh, you know, and has a lot of negative uh, consequences in terms of economic and leaving, you know, poverty and domestic violence, et cetera, when folks are displaced from their, their support networks. Um, uh, they've been having a lot of success of placing people in housing in San Francisco. So. I think one of the things that can happen that wasn't, wouldn't been able to happen a year ago is that we're going to be able to place a lot of people in the private market and we weren't able to before. And that's, I guess, a silver lining um, that it feels weird saying because it, this whole pandemic has been 
so tragic, um, but at least that's something positive to, to glom onto. I'll just add an, another opportunity that has been created with the COVID crisis has been, um, I mean, uh, the, the, the counter effect of the hotels, uh, many of which are uh, closing and the opportunity to now purchase hotels um, at much lower prices than would have been possible uh, for uh, some transitional or residential housing programs or converting into the more permanent supportive housing. Um, I'm very glad to hear this from um, Jennifer of the successful placements. Uh, I do want to just put a word of caution, though. A lot of the big numbers we're seeing in the drops in rental markets are those at the higher end of the market. Um, and, um, it, you know, it's very stratified. So although we're seeing these rent drops on some of these high end areas, I, I don't know how much more we'll get out of um, the affordable stock and all that is is to stress the need of uh, you know capturing the hotels that are available and um, maybe some short-term rentals uh, that had been converted at this time uh, that, that might be uh, useful for uh, the, the deeply affordable housing that the city desperately needs. Thanks Chris and we're just going to take this one last question. Um, from media, what stats stood out most to the people who have experienced homelessness here? Um, was there anything that made you go, wow, I didn't know that, or wow, I didn't know it was that bad? Well, the stats, I, um, and I forget exactly if it's 42 or 45, um, but it was just the, the percent of um, the trans Latinos who have experienced uh, police violence. Um, that really, that really stood out, stood out to me. Um, just because like just not only you know are you struggling with homelessness but now you're also dealing with violence and then you that affects your mental health and um and then now and now um it, it, and i've i've known people um like you know sex workers who like whenever we were walking together sometimes like you see like a police car right and you just kind of like um kind of walk away like walk um you know um and uh, I guess being younger, I was kind of like, um, I don't say insulated in a way, but um, I kind of had this, had bought this idea. Like my parents would tell me that the police were like, you know, like there to protect you. But um, uh, but you know, even even like uh, just recently, you know, like they when you call them if you're a victim of violence, like they don't even treat you like a victim. If you've been using substances, like they'll, they'll look at you as a criminal. And 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 I don't think I don't even think they know they're being violent, just because they just like are so used to doing the violence, like they don't even know that that's what they're doing and that that it is harmful. Thank you, Sarah. Is there anyone else that wants to answer that question? Well, I think one of the things that stood out was the high numbers of people who would prefer staying in a enclosed in like in an encampment than a shelter. And I don't think that speaks very favorably to our shelter system, honestly, but I also think it speaks to uh, the problem with congregate settings and the last lack of privacy and dignity that, that, that you know, these large shared spaces um, don't afford. And so, uh, you know, people really value their, um, their privacy. And um, I think you know, it's it's kind of surprising given that 
you know, if you're out in a tent and it's raining or if it's cold, I mean, it, you know, it's not, it's not giving you a lot of, a lot of what we would naturally think about as, as people wanting. Um, and it really kind of jumps up that, that, that privacy piece um, for folks and not having to constantly interface with other people and um, constantly having to negotiate these really, um, you know, if we have a place to live, you get tired of socializing or dealing with people, you go in your home and in a shelter, you can't do that. You're constantly surrounded by a large number of people and it's, um, it's hard. Just to build on that, um, I was surprised by how the, the magnitude of the answer there of uh, nearly 60% preferring it to the traditional shelters. Um, another finding on that was that 44% of those currently staying in shelters when we asked this question, said that they would prefer um, an organized camp. And um, just to add some clarity about what this is, this isn't people wanting to just stay outside on the streets. We were very clear this was an organized setting um, with some source of security, of amenities. In the question we included, we said amenities such as showers, bathrooms. Um, and then in the focus groups of which um, I uh, was uh, a mediator on on a few and asking folks about this, as Jenny mentioned, it was very much uh, the issue of privacy, but also the ability to uh, come and go as you please, to have that autonomy that uh, we've mentioned in this report of, um, uh, as well. And, um, I think that with the opening of some of these safe sleep sites, there was a real opportunity there. And um, we've seen some um, amazing examples with the uh, specifically the safe sleep site in the height um, of this and how this is working. And I would um, think that we should learn to figure out how to expand that. At the same time, I do wanna highlight another finding that I think was lost in the point in time counts, which is the fluidity of how many unsheltered folks over 80% have used or have tried to use shelter, 80% of those on the streets. And this goes against this thing we hear often of people resisting services. And, and the report, if, if you're able to really delve into it, shows the barriers, shows how much you have to sit in chairs and waits and the wait lists and being kicked out and coming back in. And, um, you know, so I think it also shows that uh, there is still a great desire for folks to get inside to safety compared to the current conditions on the streets, um, which are highly policed, um, highly precarious as well. Thanks, Chris. So it is noon, which is when we said we were gonna end our event, but there are still some questions from the Facebook chat. So I just wanna give this opportunity to everyone on this panel and for those who can still stay on and would like to answer a couple of more questions you can feel free to and people who have to hop off you can hop off thank you to the media for being here and to the incredible work of this team for doing great research um okay so i'm just going to ask a couple more of the other questions that are on here glad that a lot of folks can still stay on um this question is around the criminalization of homelessness. Have you seen a decline in quality of life citations following Boise versus Marsden? And is that reflected in the research? I could uh, uh, begin answering this. So um, we did not ask uh, 
many questions directly on the criminalization of homelessness. If you go to the coalition's website, uh, there is a report that we uh, completed in uh, 2015 uh, called Punishing the Poorest that provides a lot of um, uh, relevant information that I believe most of those findings um, uh, still largely hold. Uh, as far as uh, the specific question of citations, um, unfortunately, the city has stopped giving reports on the number of quality of life citations given. Um, they did up until 2017 and they stopped. And um, that lack of data and transparency uh, makes it very hard to track this. Um, we did see a big decline in uh, the 911 and 311 dispatches during the pandemic because the CDC has recommendations which still stand uh, right now that um, the police uh, should not break up encampments during the pandemic because it will increase community spread and that tents are a good protection uh, against uh, the community spread and that no camp should be removed unless individual housing units are offered because congregate settings still remain uh, very high danger and very high risk at this point. Although some unhoused individuals have chosen to stay in shelters and the city has made uh, some changes to make those spaces shelter uh, safer, uh, they are still not safe. Um, and so um, I, I think that's just important for folks to remember as we start to reopen. Uh, I've already heard complaints of people of that the police aren't responding, that people aren't going into congregate settings. Um, these are this is a public health issue right now still. And um, uh, this again points to the, the need for some of these safe sleep sites. Um, I don't know if some of the peer researchers or those in the work group have a more up-to-date uh, answer of how folks on the streets are currently experiencing this uh, more in the last uh, few weeks or months. One thing, one thing that I had, I had heard, uh, not specifically about the numbers, but um, one thing that uh, could um, has the potential to cause a dangerous situation for like street, like um, unhoused sex workers is um, on the 311, when, when um, some of the uh, people um, make the reports, sometimes they put a picture, like they'll attach a photo and like that is kind of like a, uh, um, I don't wanna say incriminating, but can, you know, sex workers need their, their confidentiality in order to, for their safety. And that having that in their, the 311 website um, really just kind of like also create, like, I mean, it also, even let's say this person wasn't doing sex work or, 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 or was whatever, regardless, that person is now kind of like, like uh, other people who are on that site are kind of like looking at that person as if they're doing, as if they're doing something um, harmful. Um, uh, so that, that's something that I, th I think uh, hasn't, um, it's not just SFPD, but also Department of Public, you know, Department of Public Works, like um, who's, like these other agencies that are that, that are, are causing harm to unhoused people, and um, that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Cesar and Chris. And there is actually a follow-up question to um, this issue of police violence. Have you do you have any input to the new SFPD community ambassador program to hire retired police? Do you have thoughts on the program, which is scheduled to expand in 2020? Um, I, well, 
I, I, I think I'm a little biased, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think I would, I think I, I'm more like on the line of ab abolishing the police or like, you know, defunding 100% and really creating something new. Cause like, you know, a lot, I have friends that say like, oh, there's the bad apple, there's a bad apple. But when I think about it, like to use their own analogy, it's not, there's like maybe, maybe a few good apples and like the whole tree is like really kind of like rotten and harmful and dangerous. Um, so I, 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 I don't think that would be a good idea to like hire, like um, make hire police officers. I think, um, you know, following up on what Cesar said, one thing that our report very clearly shows, um, particularly for transgender people and particularly for transgender women of color, is that police responses to homelessness, to drug use, to mental health crisis are harmful, um, ineffective and actually deepen poverty and inequality. And so what we need to do is um, really build up a robust system of social provision that doesn't involve carceral system responses to poverty. We need to provide housing and care rather than relying on police. Um, as, as first responders to homelessness. Oh, and I'll just add one last thing. Economically speaking too, why on earth would you be hiring people who've already had uh, a lucrative career um, creating harming communities when um, you could actually hire homeless folks and fully employ them to be community ambassadors. If anyone should be a community ambassador and getting paid for it, it's people who know what it's like to live in the streets and to go through these systems and to connect with people. So my two cents. Thanks for that, you all. Um, the next question is, could you speak to how this data and these recommendations will actually make it to the city level to be included in policy change? And I don't know, Jenny, or I don't know, Jenny, if you want to answer that question. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, ultimately it's up to the city, right? So, but what we'll be doing to try to make this a reality is um, doing the work that we're doing. So for example, crafting an alternative to a police response to homelessness, we have a working group going right now um, uh, in conjunction with um, folks from the city where we're developing so, uh, consensus and really uh, developing a, a very specific vision on what that would look like and what the response would, um, how the response would work. Um, and uh, with regards to, you know, for example, um, as we're trying to build up the system and having more housing and doing the things like buying hotels and, you know, doing these things and then building permanent supportive housing, um, buying co-ops, I mean, all these things that we've been mentioning, all of that can be done with um, the Prop C funds once they're available. And so we have a tremendous opportunity there. Um, we need to ensure when that new, when that system, which is really like an opportunity because it, could, it will double the existing system, really to have a new system in place that, um, that, you know, we'll be doing that work with the city partners to make sure that there is a connection between Department of Public Health and homeless mm -hmm. services that people can move from 
you know, um, they can stay in a, maybe they need to stay in, um, you know, in a boarding care facility for the rest of their life, or maybe they can move on to permanent supportive housing. And we have a system that's fluid so that we're, that, that people are able to, to, to move around at the system of care and not just instead the system now being spit back to the street. So we'll be working hard to try to get all these policies implemented um, in uh, doing a variety of, you know, legislation, advocacy, media work, all the things that we do, um, community organizing to, to make it real. If I could just add to that, in the process of uh, making this report, um, before we uh, wrote up our um, final findings, uh, we presented our um, quantitative analysis uh, to city agencies, um, as well as HESPA and uh, so many other community groups to get their feedback uh, beforehand. And um, in those conversations of which I did some of these presentations, uh, your sound cut out. Had, you know, did, but sorry, I'll turn off my video. So that'll hopefully create a um, clearer sound. Um, but as we were presenting these to agencies, um, you know, we had reactions uh, from agencies of uh, that they they had they 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 kind of thought this was going on, or they had anecdotes of it, but that they finally felt that we had provided um, hard data to make their case. Other times, it was a situation where they were surprised by these findings, and um, so they've already uh, seen some of these findings, and they've also helped us inform the recommendations. And I just wanna highlight for those of you who haven't looked at the report yet, these sections have many detailed recommendations that were really drawn from the city agencies and uh, community groups. For instance, the prevention section alone has 42 specific recommendations. So I encourage people to look at that and recognize that this has been informed by city agencies and community groups. And um, Jenny, I don't know, I think it would be useful to mention as well, the role of this oversight uh, committee of PropSP uh, which I imagine will be using this report and what role they will have in the use of the funds. Yeah, so the Prop C oversight will, um, uh, you know, they're gonna be putting out the recommendations on on how the money gets spent. And um, it's, uh, I think a really good body and um, they're also in charge of the needs assessment. So this takes the place of the needs assessment. Basically, we're gonna be presenting it as such to kind of, kickstart things and get it moving ahead. And we had, um, that's one of the reasons why we got so much comprehensive input on it. Um, yeah, and all, actually on the survey instrument too. So even down to what, what questions we asked. So it's, you know, it takes a lot for system change. It takes a lot and it takes a lot of changing narratives, building support. And a big part of that is getting um, the data and, and, and from people who who know best, which is unhoused community. So this will be our um, commitment to making sure that we, we push this forward. Okay, very, very last question. And it's about how local and state policies interact with each other. How do these findings from the report influence Project Room Key, which is Newsom's plan to house homeless people in hotels and other vacant, other units in the state? and what tweaks to that program could be most impactful. I think I would just add to that, like how do these recommendations influence state policy and what can we really draw from 
this local report to impact what's happening on the state level. I'm pausing in case anybody's gonna wanna tell me. Um, <laughs> so I think, um, you know, there, there's a lot of recommendations in there and there's a lot of potential influence. Um, the state has, you know, committed to harm reduction, for example, um, and put in some resources there. And there's a lot of details in the report of tangible examples of how that, um, how that could be used most effectively. Um, there is, you know, a big call for diversity in systems. You know, we, we kind of get stuck in our systems and it's just one kind and we have all different kinds of people with different perspectives. And I think that that can certainly influence state policy. I mean, I think the big picture on the state though is, is that the state's been negligent. I mean, let's just be real about it. They've been severely negligent. And even with this project room key, um, the amount of money that was put into it was, was, uh, nowhere near what, um, what should have been put in given the uh, wealth that exists in uh, the state of California. So I think that, you know, as long as policymakers are unwilling to tap into um, wealth and correct the inequities, because this is what we're talking about here is we have extremely impoverished people um, who have been subject to severe inequity and that takes proactive steps to correct. And that means our policymakers at the state need to be willing to do that. So far, they haven't been. They've been only willing to spread some breadcrumbs around. So um, I think that that's a, that's a huge piece of things. If you look at the state's uh, uh, um, investment in mental health, um, the investments in, um, in housing for unhoused people, the investments in the substance use system, we basically have a situation and the federal government goes the same um, where the municipal government is end up responsible for addressing these issues that are these huge systemic problems but don't have the tax base to um, to fully address them. So hopefully this report has influence on on the state to um, you know force them to get real, so to speak. Okay. And with that, we are going to be concluding our panel. Thank you everyone for joining us. And thank this will you. be online. All right. So big thanks to all the folks who contributed to this. Again, you can find this on Facebook. It, the title is a Stop the Revolving Door Report Release Panel. And also, if you go to the Coalition on Homelessness page, uh, they have uh, even more statistics, uh, different PDFs, and uh, lots more information there. Uh, wow, it's already 1.45. So, going to end up the show here. But thanks so much for tuning in. Didn't get to everything I wanted to, but got to a lot, certainly. Uh, please do stay tuned. Uh, and we'll also have be back next week with more information. Please do check out the archive and I also do want to encourage folks to check out the new page that we have that provides a little bit more information for the archive and it's a WordPress page and folks can find it by going to weeklyrev.wordpress.com and we're currently updating it with more and more information uh, so please do check that out. Also, there's a link there to our Patreon if you'd like to contribute. Anywhere from a dollar a month and up is greatly appreciated. It will all go to paying the dues to keep this show going. Uh, so anything you can do would be greatly appreciated. Please do spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter. I share a lot of information on there, at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. And I do believe that's it. And sadly, this week we lost uh, Chadwick Boseman, 
as well as uh, David Graeber, who was a, a radical anthropologist. So I wanted to end um, with just some words from David Graeber. He's also, I believe, the one of the, the, the people, the person who created the We Are the 99%. So slogan statement. So I'm going to share that here. And here's a some words from him. And then we'll play some music and we'll be back next week. So thanks so much for listening. And I hope everyone has a much of a peaceful um just a, a peaceful week. Why not, instead of the terms production and consumption, which have dominated political economy in the 20th century, we th- substitute caring and freedom? Um, why not? Um, you know, caring labor could then be defined as labor, which is primarily aimed at maintaining or augmenting another person's freedom. I mean, obviously, other things as well. But you know, it might keep you alive, but obviously you're not very free if you're not alive. Uh, but, but it's important because, you know, if you just say it's about, like, keeping people alive and healthy and basically um, taking care of their basic needs, well, why isn't a prison a caring institution? You know, right? they just do that. They just do it in a nasty way, and they, they give you no freedom at all. So, so, so if you think about the paradigm of caring labor is always a mother taking care of a child. Well, a mother takes care of a child so that child can grow and thrive, of course, but on the immediate level, you know, what are they doing right now to, to, to facilitate that child doing? It's mostly so the child can go and play, and play is the ultimate expression of freedom for its own sake, you know. Um, one could argue that's one of the constitutive principles of the universe, but that's another, another argument. <laughs>
Hey, take a break from the social isolation and come out to All Jokes, the daytime outdoor comedy show at All Good Pizza in Bayview on Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m. Where Drea Myers hosts a super funny lineup of comedians. Grab some brick oven pizza and enjoy the show in an outdoor courtyard with plenty of room to be physically distanced. See you soon at All Good Pizza for this tremendous outdoor comedy show at 1605 Gerald Avenue in the Bayview. That's all jokes at Good Pizza with Drea Myers, Saturday, August 22nd at 3 p.m. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> my name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long... We have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, Disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. I am Italian. And we brought you fascismus with Mussolini. And before that, the Romans. So if you think you live in a fascist country, well, you do. Antitrump.com is the antivirus to the Trump virus. It started in 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better America. No one thought it would be this bad. He was a 70-year-old yammering nimrod. How bad could it possibly be? We are now in a global pandemic without adequate leadership. Individual politics are not important. We need to rally behind curing the Trump virus. 
go to antitrump.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what 